You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. A team from the Veterans Affairs arrives in Hawaii later this week to focus on the high death count at the Yukio Okutsu Veterans Home in Hilo. HBR's Ku'ube Hiraishi joins us this morning with the latest. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, a glimmer of uh, good news for those in Hilo. A federal tiger team, so this sort of ad hoc group of consultants and uh, professionals in logistics and in infectious diseases will go to uh, the Yukio Okutsu State Veterans Home and work with staff for up to two weeks at this point, um, for well, actually for a minimum of two weeks, but up to six weeks. I should get that right. And so this uh, Tiger team was uh, made, or the recommendation to deploy this team was made after the VA's assessment last week. Uh, on Friday, a team had gone in uh, to check on the facility to see what needed to be done. I know uh, PPE, some protective gear was uh, taken as well to help us stock up there. But the coronavirus outbreak at that facility has already infected close to 100 people. We've got 30 staff uh, who have contracted the virus and 68 residents. Uh, Three veterans are in the hospital, but 14, uh, as we know, uh, have passed away uh so you know do we know how that virus got into the facility in the first place according to yes so according to avalon health systems uh, a utah-based company that runs the facility uh their contact tracing has led to uh two causes or two sorts of uh sources of that infection one was an asymptomatic staffer uh who brought it into the facility uh, unknowingly and was caught or was uh, tested positive through this sort of routine random testing that they already had in place. So uh, I know Dan Brinkman over at uh, the Hilo Medical Center had said, thank goodness, because this outbreak could have been worse uh, if they hadn't caught that earlier. Another source was uh, a resident who had gone to a dialysis appointment outside of the home, and the dialysis center did have uh, was a source of another cluster uh, there in Hilo. Uh, but at this point, they're looking at, at both of those uh, sources and trying to figure out how it, it got through the facility so quickly and what can be done uh, to mitigate that, that going forward. So there are three separate reports uh, coming out or three separate investigations. One is being done by this, uh, has been done by this VA team. And uh, in speaking to Doreen Summers, she's the infectious disease nurse specialist. She's been um, doing a lot of this work across the country since the pandemic has started, going into VA homes, state homes, and figuring out how they can support their veterans there. And so she did the inspection last Friday, and she gives us an idea of what she saw. So there was a team of four of us that went over last week to the Hilo Veterans Home, and we worked side-by-side side with the leadership there on the ground and took a tour of the facility, and we saw the the staff very, very dedicated to their jobs here and wanting to take care of the veterans. Um, we observed, we took time to provide education as we went along, um, we provided them with some best practices and lessons learned. There's certainly a lot of lessons learned when it comes to COVID-19 and the, the pandemic. We're learning every day. So we were able to share some of those lessons learned with them and then provide them some recommendations as well. So Summers couldn't elaborate on any of those recommendations. She, she had submitted uh, her team's report to the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, and that is under review by Incident Commander Kenneth Hara. 
uh, a spokeswoman for the for Haima had said that she could not say whether that report would made, be made available. So we might not uh, get a glimpse of what went on. And this was the uh, team that uh, Mayor Harry Kim, I think, had talked to us about and that he was expecting that report, I think, you know, Monday. Yes. Uh, I don't know if it was shared with him. Yes. So uh, Mayor Kim, uh, we did talk to him on Monday and he did receive a letter Sunday, so pretty much immediately um, listing recommendations, including this Tiger team uh, deployment. Uh, but he was sort of, he, he's been frustrated. He expressed frustration uh, with the state's uh, sort of slow movement in this process. So he says he had made a request to the state for assistance in uh, this particular outbreak two or three weeks ago. And it was only last week that uh, Haima did send their doctor uh, long-term care specialist, Colonel Albert Yazawa Tahilo to check things out. He's also compiling his own uh, report of the incident. But uh, Mary Kim over the weekend had held that press conference uh, on Saturday uh, to really air those frustrations over uh, teams coming in and then leaving without having those recommendations or implementing any of those recommendations. Here's Kim. Uh, almost disgusted. Not almost. I was disgusted because at the end, and the at the veterans' home, he said they were finished. They were going to go. He was going to go back to Honolulu and summarize the report and send it to the veterans' home with the instructions that these are the things that he feels that needs to be done to make things better. And quote, I will be back in a few days <clears throat> to see that there's compliance. And that's when I said. If I was in command, none of you would even leave this place. And I, I would care less if you don't get any sleep. You're going to stay and get this done. I think that echoes a lot of the sentiments of the local veterans community as well there uh, on the Big Island. Uh, in Hilo, we were able to talk to a Hilo resident and retired Army Colonel Deb Lewis about what's being done by the community to rally, really, a support for residents family of residents at this home and also uh, she says especially staff so lewis organized uh, hot meals for some of these overworked staff members and she also uh, got a shipment of bluetooth speakers for the residents at the home to be able to facetime and digitally connect virtually connect with their loved ones at this time so uh here's uh army colonel deb lewis talking about uh, her feelings these people are good people all of them, the residents, the, the people who are trying to support them, I see them as doing the best they can. But this is a systemic issue. And oftentimes in a crisis, the easy way is to come in and say, okay, you had these deaths, these problems, this thing. You know, instead of saying, in hindsight, as you're looking back, let's go back to the beginning. What's, knowing what you know now, what do you wish you had? What would have made this better? Because who better to provide these observations than the ones who just lived, lived through it and now are living with the consequences of knowing they may have contributed to these deaths. None of these people want that. None of these people went into work at that home with an idea that they were going to put these residents at risk. Clearly having an impact on, on the local uh, veterans community there in Hilo. I know um, some of the employees at the nursing home uh, have, you know, been working tirelessly, uh, not getting much sleep, and also just um, inundated with, I think, uh, criticism from outside of their work. So they're trying to stay focused, and I think uh, a lot of what 
Lewis uh, express is what is being felt there in the community. Yeah, I mean, it's terrible. Everybody feels badly about what's happened. Um, you know, you don't want to, you know, really play the blame game. It's very stressful for the staff that's there. I mean, uh, understandably, but, you know, we have so many deaths, and so it just, it just moves so quickly through that facility. And, and I don't know if you know, you know, w what's being done for some of the other residents, do you move the ones that are healthy and not exposed to somewhere else? Or, I mean, I just don't know. Right. There are, um, so there are uh, residents who have been moved and been hospitalized because they require sort of uh, excess care. But uh, there are, for those that are cared for in the veterans' home, they have been uh, moved or, or uh, quarantined to one end of that or uh, away from those that have recovered. So there are residents who have recovered and staff as well. Uh, but still another 34 residents um, still with COVID and, and, and awaiting sort of answers on what to do next. Oh gosh, yeah, and I don't know how many of those are, are in the hospital now, right? Yeah, well, there, there are three from this Hilo Veterans Home that are hospitalized, uh, hoping that that stays that way and or they recover. But these inspection reports that are due out, uh, especially from the Department of Health later this week, might give us a glimpse into what went wrong, but also what we can do to uh, make sure uh, more don't die. Right, and I know there's been a lot of talk about rapid response teams and uh, I think the, the concern, too, because I think a couple of the Avalon facilities here on Oahu, I think they've got some clusters. So obviously, what are the best practices? What can we, what can everybody do? Thank you so much. Thanks. We have been talking to HBR's Ishi with a snapshot of the multiple reviews on a Hilo veteran's home hit hard by COVID. Head to hawaiipublicradio.org for coverage on this issue. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin September 21st. More by searching Osher Hawaii. If you already use your smartphone or iPad to wake up in the morning, you can wake up to Morning Edition on Hawaii Public Radio. You can tune into either of our two stations first thing in the morning, all day long, and with our sleep timer, you can even fall asleep to HPR. Plus, you can see playlists, listen to interviews, and see the program schedule, too. Download our app for iPhone, iPad, or Android, and stay connected with HPR. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in Hawaii with new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to continue service for generations to come. Matson.com. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we venture into a beautiful valley in our state that's relatively untouched by time. It's a rugged hour-and-a-half drive from the nearest airport and offers some of the most beautiful views of Hawaii that you'll ever hope to see. It's a cathedral valley, half a mile wide and three to four miles deep, with towering waterfalls and well-hidden cultural sites. 
Historians believe Polynesians settled there as early as 650 A.D., and several heiau are evidence of the presence. Uh, it's a popular hiking destination, but you'll need to get permission to use that trail uh, that crosses through private property. One of the natural landmarks in the valley, uh, Hipuapua Falls, reaches a height of 500 feet. This morning, we're looking for the name of that valley and the island that it's on. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. Social Security. You probably never paid much attention to it until you were approaching retirement age. Well, here in Hawaii, such was the case for Gary Kubota. Uh, he's joined us over the years as a guest here on HPR. The author, playwright, and journalist began researching a group called the Gray Panthers, which encourages activism. Now, Kubota isn't a stranger to activism and helped to keep a Front Street housing project affordable. Here's part of a conversation we had with him last week about his efforts to organize a Gray Panthers chapter here in the islands. An issue which he has fixed his focus on is the state of Social Security and President Trump's efforts to change the payroll tax program, which funds Social Security. Some 68 million people in the country depend on that monthly check. I did remember the Great Panthers of old, like back in the 1970s, and how they were advocates for seniors in terms of uh, senior rights and pay and health care, etc. And so I went looking for uh, various chapters and things. And the most active chapter I found was in New York City by a guy named Jack Kupferman, who's the president. And so I was talking to Jack, and then he was saying, you know, so I was saying, you know, how can I help you, your organization grow, or let me learn something about it so that maybe I might be able to start a chapter over here eventually. And he said, well, I'd like you to listen in on a group called Social Security Works. And that's a group uh, that's out of D.C., and they have a coalition of other groups, including AARP. And the lady's name is Nancy Altman, who's the head of the organization for many years. And she's written books on Social Security and preserving it. And so that's what I began doing about four, four months ago, four or five months ago. And they have meetings every, every other week. And I've been sitting in, doing summaries for Jack, and then giving him heads up about things, but also educating myself about it. Then suddenly what happened was uh, the president had basically deferred payroll taxes for, for uh, four months toward the end of this year as part of, uh, I guess, his attempt to control budget expenses. Then the realization was also, after listening to some of his press conferences, 
that his intention was not only in terms of deferring it, but actually eliminating payroll taxes. And payroll taxes go to major funding of Social Security in its various aspects like disability, like benefit payments, like ability to pay for survivors of whose children uh, need help and mothers and widows and orphans. So, you know, it had, it had a profound effect. It's actually one of five people in the United States have, collect some kind of benefit from Social Security. And the upshot is that it served as a net for the modern economy, the consumer economy, in the sense that a lot of people who would have been homeless back in the 1930s during the Great Depression had this ability of using and applying the Social Security payments for rent and for other things, you know, basic necessities like that. So if this net is, is basically eliminated, you're going to have a lot of people who are right now in public housing projects and paying with their Social Security to, to paying the, you know, for the affordable housing at a discount. You're going to have them homeless, and you're going to have a bigger problem than you've ever had before. And the burden is going to be on the state, and it's going to be upon uh, social welfare, nonprofit organizations. And we have to take a serious look at what the impacts are. And the problem is that President Trump has not explained whatever he plans in detail. The 38 million member AARP has sent a letter to him saying, hey, we're worried. You know what? What do you mean by all this? We need to save Social Security. It it is under threat. And the thing is that uh, we haven't had a really good conversation about it like that. I think that when the president refers to it, he calls that payroll tax, but he doesn't refer to it as Social Security, which is kind of a a strange thing. You know, I think that that you need to call it what it really is. And so people are aware of what's going to happen. Um, the other part is that uh, at one point he was, when he was pressed, he would say, well, we're going we're gonna to use the general fund to fund it. And that was it. Well, using the general fund to fund it doesn't work because what that requires is it's a, the general fund is an operating budget in Congress. And it requires the U.S. Senate and Congress to authorize a bill for Social Security payments. And it usually is a either an annual or biennium budget, so you continuously have to get approval again and again. It becomes a political football, and you also stand in the back of the line behind special funds. I guess from his point of view as well, you know, if I'm reelected like that, I'm going to eliminate payroll taxes. Well, that doesn't solve the situation, you know. That, that complicates the situation. What are you going to do with all these people, one out of five people in the United States? You know, get some kind of benefit. What are you going to do with the moms, dads, grandpas, uncles, aunties who rely upon Social Security to pay the rent? You know, that's the, that's the, that's one of the things that he hasn't he hasn't raised, and he doesn't want to raise. I mean, he's talk a lot about riots. He'll talk a lot about uh, COVID nineteen and, and and things like that. But you know, the it, it, to me, it's a lot of distraction. What we're talking about is trillions of dollars trillions in a matter of just a couple or a few years, trillions of dollars that, that, that would have gone to benefit the people who have been paying into Social Security all their life, taken away from them. And now, where is that money going? Well, this is the other part of the equation, and I can address it because I've been taking a look at some of the policies that have been adopted by the Trump administration. And one of them back in 2017 was a thing called the 2017 Tax Cut Jobs Bill. And 
a congressional report analysis of it. It's kind of like the Hawaii Legislative Bureau. Um, you know, they, they come out with these nonpartisan reports, and they, they basically said that as far as the intent or stated intent of creating jobs, it's a complete failure. You know, or very few jobs were generated. What happened was that $170 billion was taken out of the government of out of government revenues in 10 months, and a lot of it went corporations who then proceeded to keep the money, not generate any other job, and actually a considerable sum went into buybacks, you know, stock buybacks, to raise the prices of their stocks. Now, the end result is this. In 2019, family farm bankruptcy rose to an eight-year high in the Midwest especially, and this was before we had the COVID virus. So it gives you an idea of how effective that 2017 tax cut jobs bill was. Another analysis from the Brookings Institute, quoting federal source, said there were 300,000 jobs basically eliminated as a result of another aspect of uh, Trump's policies, and that is the tariff war with China and $1 trillion in, in stock prices being lowered. So what we need to do is take a look at these kinds of policies and roll them back, either like suspend them, suspend the 2017 tax cut jobs bill that's going mainly to the 1% at the very top of uh, the wealthy, wealthy corporations, et cetera. As a matter of fact, one of the major beneficiaries of this, if you look at Forbes magazine and you Google, you'll see Blackstone Group, Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, and you'll see that they're getting their camp, a large portion of their campaign funds from Blackstone Group. So we're talking about definitely an, you know, uh, an association in which it becomes kind of hard to reverse and roll back things when your campaign contributions are coming from those who are benefiting from it right now. And this has become a very political issue, uh, the Democratic Convention. Joe Biden, I think, brought up the whole issue of the threats to the Social Security program. The thing is that we're not trying to endorse Republicans or Democrats. I'm, I'm not trying to, but it just so happens in this particular instance, because of what jo Donald Trump has done like that, that it's become such a threat that people are taking the position that, well, you know, this guy's not going to reverse what he said he's going to do. You know, he's going to continue to do it. And, uh, you know, I basically, I, you know, I sent you quotes of a couple of things that Donald Trump has said, because I know people tend to deny and say, oh, he didn't say that, he didn't say this. So I just want to read one of the quotes like that when he was talking about, um, you know, payroll taxes, et cetera. At the end of the year, this is Trump talking, quote, at the end of the year, on the assumption I win, comma, I'm going to terminate the payroll tax, end quote. Other, you know, people that have criticized, you know, what I've been talking about say, well, you know, Democrats borrowed from, from FICA, the Federal Insurance Contributions Act, you know, Social Security indirectly. And, you know, the point is, yeah, I guess. But that doesn't mean that they should have or that I support that. I don't support it. And uh, the coalition to save Social Security does not want that to happen. The, the thing about it is just is, is basically, you know, you have to look at all those people, the tens, tens of millions of people who have contributed to Social Security. And this is their safety net. All of this that I'm talking about, I'm a volunteer. I'm a retiree like that. I'm also a surfer. <laughs> <laughs> 
so this is taking me away a little bit from a lot of things I like to do. <laughs> yeah. It's important, and that's why I did it. And that was Gary Capota, who is exploring the idea of forming a chapter of Grey Panthers here in the islands. And that activism has turned his attention to the Social Security program, which Gary shares he has begun drawing from. As if dealing with a pandemic wasn't dramatic enough, we've seen a shakeup at the State Department of Health, including threats of retaliation against a whistleblower. That's the subject of today's reality chat. Honolulu, Be- Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Stuart Yurton joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, you've been uh, uh, focusing on this uh, epidemiologist, Jennifer Smith. Right. So, you know, briefly, the story is uh, Jennifer Smith, a a Ph.D. epidemiologist, uh, came forward a while ago, a few weeks ago, with information that the state's contact tracing program wasn't what it seemed. Uh, She said there weren't nearly enough contact tracers to do the job when when we had a big surge of cases. Um, And, you know, we saw a lot of changes since then. The Department of Health really responded. And uh, but Recently, uh, Dr. Smith was uh, put on paid leave, forced to take paid leave. And the question we're looking at is uh, whether uh, she would be protected under the state's whistleblower law, the Whistleblower Protection Act. Um, so that's, that's really it. So she has hired an attorney. Yes, she's hired an attorney, Carl Verity, who does employment law. They haven't filed a lawsuit yet. Uh, what we did do was, though, we looked at one of the main whistleblower laws protecting her, and this, again, is the Hawaii Whistleblower Protection Act, and we tried to say, well, given what we know about this case, would this law protect her? One of the interesting ideas is you could be a whistleblower in the common sense, but really not be a whistleblower in the legal sense. You've got to meet certain uh, criteria or standards under the law to be considered one and, and to be protected as one. So do we know if um, she has a valid claim or not? Well, that's, the, that's what we're looking at. So, you know, what the elements that of the statute, as the courts have interpreted it, um, are really three things. One, to, to, to be a whistleblower, prevail in a case, you have to, the whistleblower or the person, the employee, has to engage in protected conduct. The employer has to take some adverse action. And there, against the employee, and there has to be a causal connection between the alleged retaliation or adverse action and the whistleblowing. So, you know, essentially those are the three big questions, and it's very fact-intensive, but we do know a few things about her case, and, and we've talked to her attorney who's uh, made some uh, arguments uh, as well. So we have a sense. Um, uh, to the first question, w- did she engage in protected conduct? It's an interesting question. Just talking or blowing the whistle or talking to you or me in the media or a friend isn't necessarily protected conduct. Um, 
you have the issue has to be one of uh, exposing some kind of violation of the law or a government contract, and it really has to be made to a a, a government official or government body. Uh, just telling the media wouldn't be enough, but going to say the state senate or U.S. Congress and saying, "Hey, I think there's a problem here," that could be enough. Um, again just saying, hey, I don't agree with what the department is doing wouldn't necessarily uh, be a protected activity. But saying, you know, we got all this money uh, from the federal government for uh, things like contact tracing, and we don't know how it's being spent, uh, maybe that would be. Interesting. And then what about the action that was taken against her, the fact that she was put on leave? Yeah, so the the issue there is there there can be a, a, a essentially a burden shifting. If somebody's put up, if somebody blows the whistle and is put on leave soon afterward, uh, the burden can shift to the government to explain or the employer to explain why that isn't a um, a, a causal connection. Um, in other words, why they didn't put the person on leave because they blew the whistle, and. Um, you know that's that seems to favor uh, Dr. Smith now. The timing, you know, this sort of temporal relationship. But again, a lot of this is uh, going to be very. Uh, it's all very fact intensive, and it's the kind of thing that could end up having to come out in a trial. Right. Yeah. And and I I know there are allegations that she made some threats, but I don't know if there was a police report made. Um, you know, I guess we're just going to have to see if you know she and her attorney decides there's enough there, you know, they decide there's enough there to take legal action. That's it. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll have to see how how, uh, how quickly they progress in this area. But thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. To read his story, visit civilbeat.org. Follow the money. Here in Hawaii, defense spending is described as one of a three-legged, one of the legs of a three-legged stool in our economy. And to better understand its impact on the business community, there's a new tool available. The State Department of Business and Economic Development and Tourism and the U.S. Department of Defense Office of Economic Adjustment have just launched a new website. It analyzes DOD contracts and grants awarded here in the islands. The state's defense industry specialist, John Green, spoke with our producer, Lillian Tsang, about the online project. When you come to the website, it gives a breakdown as far as how many active duty people are here, how many people are in the Guard and Reserve, and then the civilian workforce for the Department of Defense. So we, we give some past and present issues related to the military, uh, obviously 2020 being the most recent, and we see the impact that the COVID pandemic has had upon the state, specifically as it relates to, to RIMPAC in 2020 and how it was all based at sea this year and limited impact on, on land. We look at the key installations here within Hawaii. We highlight the Pacific Missile Range on Kauai. Uh, we also highlight Pearl Harbor Naval Shipyard. It's the largest industrial area within our state. And we also highlight Tripler Army Medical Center. We want to let the, the general public know about the, the diverse nature of uh, defense impact, and those are pretty diverse installations. We also look at the spending within our state, 
we can look at the top contractors, uh, the small businesses that are impacted. We want to see how this impacts each county. Obviously, Honolulu County has the greatest impact when it comes to military spending simply because of the number of bases that are here. But that doesn't mean that other islands aren't impacted as well. Pacific Missile Range on Kauai is a large employer within Kauai County. We have the Supercomputer Center on Maui, which is funded through a grant from the Department of the Air Force through the University of Hawaii. And then obviously the big island of Wakaloa training ground. Military spending impacts hundreds of different industries and basically thousands of different companies locally and accounts for approximately 7.7% of our state's gross domestic product, second only to tourism. And it's maintained between 7 and 8% of our gross domestic product for at least the last five years. Defense spending has been stable, and we actually foresee it to grow. Put some numbers on that. Sure. So defense spending in Hawaii for fiscal year 2018, the latest year we have actual figures for, was approximately $7.2 billion. And of that $7.2 billion, $4.9 was for payroll for active duty reserve and direct hires from the federal government who support the Department of Defense, and $2.3 billion was in contract spending and procurement. So we're focused more upon that $2.3 billion and how it impacts our local businesses who do either direct contracting with the Department of Defense or who subcontract to other businesses doing prime contracting with the Department of Defense. Can you give me examples of what sort of businesses would be contracted and what is procured? Here in Hawaii, our major industries which work with the Department of Defense are shipbuilding and ship repair, uh, the construction industry, as the military has a lot of different construction projects going on at, at many different bases, and then professional services. And specific to professional services are information technology and information awareness. So we want to basically improve the competitiveness of the local businesses and make sure they're also aware of you know, how they can become more resilient should defense spending decrease in our state. For a business who's hearing about this now, how can they utilize your website? If a business is interested in government contracting, they can use this website to see how much money is being spent on a specific industry within our state. And they can also do a, a trend analysis. So we have the ability on the, on the website to, to look back for several years and see how spending in, in specific industries have changed over time. And if you're a business with an industry and you want to know if government contracting is a, is a right choice for you, you can and look at that trend and say, you know what, defense spending is increasing. It's something that I think would be a, a good opportunity to increase my revenue by being involved with it. And they can also look at other businesses within our state who have won contracts with the Department of Defense and possibly even partner with them. One of the drawbacks to, to local businesses working with the Department of Defense is that they don't have what's called past performance. And one of the great ways to establish that past performance is to work with an established contractor as a subcontractor. So we provide that information on our website as far as which local businesses are winning contracts under which industry and which department within the Department of Defense is actually awarding these contracts. That's a lot of information to delve mm -hmm. through also a great way to get your foot in the door. Absolutely. Any way a, a business can build up their past performance, it's important for the government to know that, that they're awarding a contract to a business that they have the ability to perform on it. And that past experience lets the government know that those, those businesses are capable. Really sounds like you guys went through a lot of thought to make it usable by the public. 
Yeah, we we did. It, it took a long time to to launch it, so it's publicly facing, and the information that there is it's important information, but it's also conveyed in a way that's hopefully easily understood uh, by those who look at the website. And where did you obtain the data? Um, from various resources. Um, when we're talking about the procurement dollars, uh, one of the beauties about government contracting is that it's transparent, mm. and the federal government uses what's called usaspending.gov, and also another site called the Federal Procurement Data System, where the general public can see where their tax dollars are being spent. And the problem with those sites is that it's not specific to one location. So one of the challenges for us was to make it all specific to Hawaii by extracting that information and just making it for Hawaii only. Well, if somebody who's not, not as savvy with the web and doesn't mm -hmm. like going online, is there something compatible for somebody who wants to just go speak to a person? Um, that's a good question. Currently, we've just kind of devoted it towards the public-facing website. There are other resource partners that are devoted to contracting in general. And while DOD contracting makes up probably 90% of the government contracting within our state, they could probably reach out to Small Business Development Center or the Hawaii Procurement Technical Assistance Center that deals specifically with small businesses and deals specifically with contracting. So I would probably say to, to reach out to one of them. You know, as we transition and grow in, into greater understanding of what defense means to Hawaii, we're also looking at like, workforce development. There's no other sector of our economy that impacts so many other industries as defense does. It's a buzzword now as far as diversification, resiliency is concerned, but defense can actually be seen as a driver of demand when it comes to workforce. How can we use defense to impact our skilled labor here in Hawaii? because there's industries that have a lot of flexibility that can work both within the Department of Defense, but outside within the commercial sector or residential sector. How do we diversify our workforce and be not so reliant upon one sector of our economy? Workforce is definitely something that we're interested in. You know, how are people trying to pivot during COVID? Mm -hmm. How are people looking to change careers? Is there a link? that helps people learn more about workforce on the site? Not yet. We're actually in phase two of, of three phases of our grant with the Department of Defense. And even though phase three was more devoted to workforce development, because of the situation we're in with related to COVID and, and the loss of, of the major sector of our state's economy, um, we've started to focus more on what phase three will look like. So we've done some surveys of local businesses specific to workforce, and we're focused on uh, information technology, the construction and engineering industry, and then ship repair, because those industries probably have the most flexibility to work uh, within and without DOD dollars being spent in it. That was John Green. He's with the state's Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism. He says phase three of the Hawaii Defense Economy website, which will focus on jobs, is slated to roll out sometime in the next six months. Find links to this story at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to the community's health with a temporary museum closure and offering digital experiences at honolulumuseum.org. Just two and a half weeks, that's how long it took for Japan to select its new leader. I'm Marco Werman. Shinzo Abe announced he would step down in the last days of August, and now Japan's new prime minister takes over. Yoshihide Suga says he's focused on the economy and the pandemic. We must overcome this crisis, Suga told supporters. His plan to do that next time on The World. Starting this afternoon at 1. In today's Backyard Quiz, we thought about a valley on the east end of Molokai that was once home to a population of thousands. It was a rich source of taro and was in continuous use as an agricultural site until the 1946 and 1957 tsunamis destroyed the taro fields. Archaeologists trace some of the earliest evidence of human habitation uh, back uh, 1,350 years making it one of the earliest known settlements in Hawaii. Uh, 17 heiau can be found here along with irrigation channels and ancient walls in terraces. Visitors to Molokai take the long drive from the airport past Hawaiian fish ponds, uh, Kumimi Beach, also known as 20 Mile Beach, and Molokai's first Christian church, which was built in 1883. Hikers take guided trips into the valley for a view of Mo'ola Falls, uh, uh, 250 feet in height and a swim in the pool below. It's an intermediate hike, a little more than four miles round trip, but it offers a view of Molokai's Halava Valley that you will not forget. And that is the answer we were looking for. And congratulations to Steve Eminger. He happens to be a Molokai boy who grew up in that valley. And today he's an archaeologist in Kamikakai. Thank you for listening, Steve, and thank you for giving us a call. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. As we continue our look at available jobs and who's hiring, we also turn our attention to those who've started their own business. Roy Yamada was working as a personal trainer at UFC Gym in Kaka'ako, when Hawaii's first shutdown went into effect. The company laid off workers, so Yamada started his own business. He's a member of the Entrepreneur Sandbox in Kaka'ako. He spoke with the Conversations' Jason Ubai about pivoting during this crisis. The transition was natural, you know what I mean? It was kind of out of necessity, you know, we were all laid off. It was never in my mind to just sit down and do nothing, right? So once we all got laid off, I started reaching out to people trying to get clientele to train, to be coached, whether that be nutrition or the workouts itself. I guess also it was natural because I've, prior to that, I, I've been putting out content for the health and fitness field for about two years before that. So it's not like I was just somebody all of a sudden going out there and saying, oh, want to train with me? Want to train with me? You know, I, I think that Building that personal brand prior to that really helped with the transition. So after that, it just kind of carried on, and that's how the business started. It was just out of necessity from being shut down and everything. Can you tell me about what kind of services do you provide? What does personal training look like during the pandemic? Where it is now, it's kind of different from when it started. When I first started, it was 
you know, jumping on a FaceTime or Skype or Zoom or some kind of video software like that and actually sitting down with the client and running them through a workout. So an hour workout with them, critiquing. And it kind of moved away from that because I started to focus on more nutrition. I still do training, but really I, I kind of strayed away from the video chat one-on-one session. So as of now, it's more of weekly check-ins, accountability check-ins. You know, we make their plans for them. Can you tell me about yeah. the nutrition plans? I onboard clients, and when they start with me, we kind of go over their whole situation, right, like what they're currently doing as far as their nutrition, their sleep, their activity, everything to do with their health, right, because that's what I move towards is a more holistic approach to things. I mainly focus on weight loss, so all of these areas are important. After kind of getting a grand view of their current situation, we go ahead and we break things down, right, into small, smaller chunks, uh, more manageable chunks, because my whole philosophy is I don't want you to work with me forever. Uh, I want you to build sustainable habits to be able to go ahead and do this on your own eventually. So it's a lot of seeing what they're doing and breaking down small actions to get to their goals. So for an example, a skill that someone would need for nutrition is meal prepping, right? So we have to actually break that down. Okay, what can you do to be better at meal prepping? And that goes into planning and preparation and cooking skills. So it's a lot of breaking things down in digestible chunks for them. After that, we kind of make adjustments as we go along. So whether that be making adjustments to their activity levels, whether that be to their nutrition, anything we need to make changes to get them towards their end goal, uh, which a lot of times is weight loss. Are you a nutritionist? I am a nutrition certified. I don't have the right to be called a dietitian or a nutritionist, but I am certified uh, in nutrition. How do you find new clients during this time? A lot of it, like I mentioned before, it helped that I had been putting out content prior, so my personal brand was there. Um, so a lot of it was through social media, so Instagram. Instagram was really my main thing. I even started uh, TikTok. It started blowing up, I guess, because everyone was, uh, you know, at home watching videos. So I started posting my content onto TikTok. I actually got a couple of clients from there, which is really cool because being that my business is based online, I am not you know, boxed into a specific geographic location. So, I mean, I have a client from even as far as Sweden. Most of it is through social media. I am actually working on a program right now because I found that, you know, I want to work on my scalability. So my program is going to be run through Facebook advertisements, online advertisements. I also have some word of mouth. So referrals are really powerful too. That really helps me out, just having my clients kind of share their experience and, you know, share the value that I can bring to lives. That's been really helpful for me. What has been the demand for your services? When I started, I had a limiting belief, right? And it's a lot of uh, 
a lot of people that start their own business, I feel like, have this belief. It's just like the demand's not there, you know, especially during this time. I had every reason to think that people wouldn't want to spend their money. You know, they're getting laid off. They're, they're, their income is lowered, you know. I came into it, you know, thinking my services weren't going to be looked for. So to my surprise, it, it all depends what people value. The demand, I feel, is, it's still up there as anything else. I feel like it hasn't gone down, hasn't gone up. But I do think that the, the, the demand should be more because, you know, our health is our foundation, right? And the, the guidelines for wearing a mask, you know, washing your hands, you know, that's all really good. But really people should be taking care of their health because that's our number one defense, right? Especially during this time. People really need to get their health in check so that if for circumstances that aren't favorable happen, you know, and you actually get sick or you get ill, you know, we want to be able to fight against that. So the demand is there. I just think that it could be better. And that's kind of my mission, right, is putting this information out there so people understand that their health is their number one asset. It's really cool to see during this whole pandemic, right? You'll see it on social media. Everyone's kind of getting their hustle on. Like, people are making big, good businesses. Uh, I've seen, like, coffee businesses. Like, it's just, it's really refreshing, and it's really nice to see that people are out there uh, making it happen, you know, and not letting their circumstances kind of dictate their life. I think that's really awesome. That was Roy Amata, a weight loss coach who started his mostly online business during the pandemic. You can find links to his social media on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we have to go, but up tomorrow, about this pandemic, can we talk? Balancing privacy versus transparency when it comes to data sharing. Join the conversation. What's getting in the way? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow. Call in and join the conversation.